I'm Kieran Garlick from the Advancement Book Club and I'm here today with Anthony Tazgal, author of the Insight book, uh, Taz. So we're going to talk with Taz um, about his book and his journey as an author uh, and a speaker uh, and a trainer. And a lecturer. And a lecturer. Um, so uh, Taz, your book, the Insight book, was just out. That's very much based in kind of advertising world. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your background in advertising and how that got you to writing a book? Yeah, I, uh, I started working in ad agencies, it was my first job, and I worked as what's called an account planner, so it's like a strategist, um, which was a bit of an odd leap because before that I'd spent four years doing Latin, Greek and ancient history, but ended up in advertising. And what I liked about it was the fact that I was working, as you say, with ads, but also with branding and marketing and government stuff and big companies like Peugeot or Cadbury and I was trying to get people to either buy products or change their opinions about particular things and I found it really fascinating because it's almost like a sort of psychology lab working in advertising and I like working with creative people because they're all you know but I also like helping get clients to sort of turn their challenges into something sort of real. So I did that and came across this thing called Insight, which became, we need Insight for our brand, we need Insight to reposition or reframe our brand, or we need an Insight to help win the pitch for an agency against another agency. So all those things began to sort of percolate, as, as well as understanding how to tell good stories. And I did that for a few years and then got to an age where I thought, probably I'm getting too old to work in advertising, because the average age of people in advertising is 12. So I sort of thought, okay, I wanted to branch out and, and do some training and do some lecturing and maybe sort of start writing books. So that's how that all began and went on for quite a few years. So, so you were in advertising, uh, but you talk about insight. So was insight a speciality of yours or how does that, how's that work? Yeah, because in the ad industry world, the way that different functions work is that creative people, their end product is very clear. You know, they come up with the ideas, the ads, and everyone applauds them and they get lots of money. Uh, account managers, account directors, their role is generally to stand there and pour water. Sorry. Um, but as a planner, your end product, it's slightly more intangible because you're coming up with a creative strategy or creative brief, which you give creative people to work with. But it occurred to me that the nearest thing we have to an end product as planners is an insight. So if you can give a, cl um, a client or creative team or the agency an insight that says this will change your brand, or this will help your agency win a pitch, that's probably as good as we can get. So rather than just going into meetings, actually, can we come up with a, with a great insight? So I always thought, okay, that's the thing I'm aiming at, whatever it is I'm trying to produce. If I can produce an insight, that's pretty much, I think, what I should be being paid for. So clearly the background of this is advertising, but it, the book feels like it's broader than, yeah. than advertising. So was that a conscious thing? Were you, did, did you want it to be about advertising or, or was there a kind of, what, what were you hoping the impact would be um, of the book? No, you're right. I mean, I, I sort of focused on ad, the ad world and also the marketing and branding world because it's where I come from. But the more I thought about insight, the more I realised actually it's a very, very broad topic. And there's a whole section in the book about actually other people, other than market researchers, who have now tended to sort of colonise insight and think, OK, we have all the data. So market researchers or data analysts or data squirrels, as I like to call them sometimes, they've almost colonised it and said, our insight is ours because we have data. And part of the reason I wrote the book was to say, no, insight isn't just about, as I say, staring long and longingly at data. It's a much more creative 
exercise. So part of what I was trying to do was take it out of this niche which says it's only market research people or insight people or even ad industry people who have the right to talk about insight. Because a lot of the book I've researched all sorts of creative people, artists, writers, thinkers and scientists. So if you said to either Isaac Newton or Leonardo, you know, insight began in the market research industry in 1980, I think they probably think it didn't. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is spread it out and to bring it to other areas, for example, even in schools and education. Talking of schools and education, we were talking earlier about uh, young people. Uh, sorry, let me backtrack. We've just come out of COVID. Um, yeah. The world has changed. Um, and a lot of your book talks about how insight can often be accidental, perhaps. Um, how uh, you talk about um, serendipitous... Um, external serendipitous influence. There you go. Um, <laughs> and with COVID now, perhaps young people especially will not have those same kind of experiences in the workplace or in school, mm. um, working from home and studying at home. So what kind of impact do you think that will have uh, on the workplace, on insight? I'm going to metaphorically roll my sleeves up now because okay. this, um, this, is, this is like one of my rants, really. So I do an awful lot of training, not just storytelling and behavioural economics and insight. Um, and as you say, I, I wrote that last section um, during COVID. And it, COVID affected me and my view of insight as a practitioner, as a writer, and also as a parent. And all those things came together because one of the things that I say at the end of the book is how do you be become better as an individual, as an, indivi as an individual at talking about and discovering insight. But also how do companies create cultures that generate insight? Because again, whether you're um, a client in marketing or branding, whether you're, I don't know, um, in any other creative area, you want to create in insight. That's what you're trying to do. So Pixar famously, their offices were designed so that everyone had to go through a central lobby to get to their offices, so everyone would literally bump into each other. So this thing, as I say, ESI is external serendipitous influences. There's an awful lot in the book about how insight is about creating collisions and combinations. So my behavioural economics training, we talk about the unconscious system one. So at an individual level, our brain makes ideas collide unconsciously. And in the, the business, this is called the three Bs. Bed, bath and bus. Right? And everyone knows that you can go to bed and you've, you can't, and then in the morning suddenly the answer mm. comes to you. Or you're in the bath, famously Archimedes, Eureka in the bath. So a lot of what I'm, I'm saying in the book is, how do we do it as individuals? Right, we need to read more and go out and bump into people, whatever. But how do companies do that? So companies at a collective level have to get as many of their people to come in, speak to each other, bump into each other over a cup of coffee or at the water cooler or in the lift, and say, what are you doing? What are you reading? What are you? And then those ideas will percolate and they'll become, either within individuals or groups, they will become the basis of insight. So, what I was trying to say as we were coming out of COVID was, and you had Jacob Rees Mogg shouting at people in the civil service and everything, but um, what I was trying to say was companies, if they want to create a culture of insight, they need to get more of their staff back in more often to bump into each other so that those incidental collisions will create things later down the line. So I'm quite sort of, I'm quite forceful about companies saying, 
I know why it's in your interest and I absolutely know why lots of people, whether they are introverted or whether they have issues, they want to work from it. I absolutely understand that. But at a company level, it's a really good idea to try and get people back so that they can create that sense of, of insight. So, like you said, that's, that's at a company level. At an individual level, is there anything that people can do, you know, at an individual level to, to, to be more insightful? Yeah, there's a Whether few... that's at work or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I've got... A, the last section, there's three things. There's characteristics, credos, and uh, culture. So there's a few sort of credos that I've given. So one of my credos is information is to be collected, but insight is to be connected. So insight is always about trying to make as many new connections as you can. So, you know, do read, do go outside your area. So one of the things I talk about, and again, it goes back to my ad industry days, is often people work in one sector or in one market or in one brand. So I've just come off the saying to you before, come off a call with a client, um, and they're a charity and they work in one particular sort of sphere. Um, or I used to work with Cadbury, chocolate or Specsavers, Vision. And the danger with that area is that if all you do is see people as people who need eye tests or people who consume chocolate, it's very hard to come up with insights. So I always say to people, you've got to have one foot in your market, in your world, but one foot outside. So an awful lot I'm saying is about being... Can I do a bit of etymology? All right, for a bit of yeah, go I didn't. I mentioned I used to do classics, so I'm obsessed with etymology, where words <laughs> come from. So uh, there's a word, we talk about error, right? So error is generally not considered to be a good thing. But if you go back to the origin of that word, errare in Latin means to wander, which is why we talk about erratic behaviour. If you're mm. driving erratically, you're wandering across the road. So I always say to people, error, error is not making a mistake, it's wandering. So again, one of the things I'll say to people, if you want to be more insightful, is allow yourself to wander. You'll make mistakes, you'll do... But if you wander outside of your specific area of expertise or competency, it's more likely, someone described it nicely, you're, you're at risk of coming up with good ideas. And again, that's one of the things that I talk about. I talk about the power of being a good storyteller. And I would say that, wouldn't I? Because my first book <laughs> and the fourth book, which was a sequel, are all about storytelling. I think a good insight is about telling stories. So you can find the insight but how you share that insight and how you make people listen to that insight is the other half of the story. And often people don't get that right. They say, I've come up with an insight. But how are you going to get your, the, the CEO, how are you going to get people to listen to it and put it into practice? Um, and another area um, that I'm fascinated by, it's probably a topic in itself, is wit. I'm obsessed with humour, how humour works. Um, and I often think that humour and insight are very similar. So an insight is like a punchline. So two fish in a tank. One says to the other, how do you drive this thing? Insert, insert laughter. And the point is, that's what insight... Insight takes you somewhere, and then at the end, you go, oh, OK. Because there's a quote I use from Isaac Asimov, who's a scientist and science fiction writer, who many people know. He wrote iRobot and Foundation and Empire. And... He had this great, this great saying as an as a interviewee and a scientist. He says, when scientists come up with something new, they don't shout Eureka. They go, that's funny. And I've always thought that's the, one of the best definitions I've heard of insight. He's not actually using it, but I think it's a great, that's funny. And humour does that, because funny has two meanings. 
but also when you're looking at something, it makes you stop and think, oh, hang on, that's, that's funny, I hadn't thought of it. That means you're probably on the right trail for an insight. So we talked, or your book rather, talks a lot about uh, insight and the kind of, I don't know, whimsical nature, I suppose, of insight, but you also have in here some kind of tangible, you have a murder board. <laughs> Tell us about the yeah. murder board. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really aiming for like the detective Richard Osman mm. crossover here. Um, no, seriously, the, the, the point about it was I just thought, there are lots of, I'm a person who likes words, I'm not very visual, but I do like my words, the etymology and stuff. So there's like a mood board or a, a word cloud of words like storyteller and um, uh, wanderer, almost. But I thought, is there anything vaguely visual I can put in a book? And then it occurred to me, I was, because I do watch an awful lot of Scandinavian and non-Scandinavian detective programmes, and I thought, actually, that murder board, which I think is the technical term for it, which is a bit like here, really, where you see the detectives and they're all sitting around the room and there's, like, bits of thread and there's arrows talking about where the murder... And I actually thought, you know, that's not a bad analogy for how insight works in the brain. So you've got all sorts of things colliding and buffeting all over, which don't seem necessarily to be connected except where your brain unconsciously goes, actually there's a thread between that and that. So in the, in the same way that they're looking for like a modus operandi or a killer, mm. your brain is trying to make also connections that link things. So one of the things, again, in the book, I'm a huge film fan, which I don't think I've talked enough about. So there are a couple of film references in there. So um, Suzanne Collins famously said that she was just scrolling through TV stations, you know, one, one evening, and there was a programme about war. I think it was Afghanistan mm. or Iraq. And she was watching all this horror. And then she just happened to channel hop, and the next one was a reality show. And she thought, what about what would happen if you put those things together? And then she wrote Hunger Games. And uh, Charlie Kaufman was saying, I had two great ideas. It was about somebody living in someone's, inside someone's head and the idea of two colleagues at work having an affair. And he said, the ideas didn't go anywhere, but I put them together, and it became being John Malkovich. So this idea about ideas at random, but if you can link them up, something new comes out. That's one of my ways of, of demonstrating insight. So I thought I'd show the picture of the, of the murder board, again, as a, just a visual metaphor for that idea. Let's backtrack a little bit. Um, so what I, another thing that I'm quite interested in as members of a book club um, is what made you write the book? Yeah. Um, and beyond, obviously, your interest in insight or storytelling. Um, so what made you want to write a book? And how did you find that process? Uh, what did you get from it? What were the challenges? I've, I've, this eight years now since the first book came out. And I'd, I'd always wanted to write a book. I've always loved books. I'm a, a person who grew up with, not when I was very young, because it was Marvel comics, but got into books and, as I say, Latin and Greek. And I've, I've always thought I'd really like to write a book. And then... About eight years ago, um, I was doing all this training on storytelling and thought, I've got enough material here, I could probably write something. So I wrote 75,000 words on storytelling and had a contract uh, with a publisher. And they said, Rick, we really like this, we're going to publish it. And I was thinking, yeah. And then I got an email from the editor, a guy called Martin, saying, I'm leaving Hong Kong, which is where he was based, coming back to London, but don't worry, everything will be fine. Now, as you know, there are certain sentences or phrases in English which mean the opposite of what they seem to everything say. Everything will so be fine. Everything will be fine means no. 
uh, like, you know, with all due respect means, mm. I don't care what you think. Um, so about two weeks later, I got an email from the publisher, his boss, saying, um, we've changed our mind. We're not going to publish it. No reason, just, just not going to publish it. So um, I live in North London, so every person you bump into is a lawyer. And I said, well, you know, I've got a contract. I said, yeah, it's just not really worth. So I got a bit fed up, a bit miserable. And then six months later, a year later, Martin turned up in London. He said, come out and have an Earl Grey tea, which is my tipple. Um, and we had a chat and he said, look, I work for this company called Lid, and they do these concise advice, thin moleskin-sized books. If you can cut it down from 75,000 to 28,000, I'll publish it. So I had this very difficult choice, which is I really wanted to be published and be in a bookshop, but I also didn't want to lose 47,000 of my favourite words. So I did that in the end, obviously, you know, spoiler alert, the book's there. Um, but the thing was, I'd always wanted to, to, to write it. And I've said, people keep asking me about how do you write a book? What, I often think, actually, if there's something that annoys you, Hmm. or something you think isn't right. That's, so the first book, I've talked a bit about the inside, but the, but the first book was, um, as I hinted before, lots of people present really badly. Lots of people write really boring presentations. Lots of websites are dull. Lots of advertising is dull. So I thought, actually, why? And it's because we've created this system I call arithmocracy, the obsession with numbers and metrics and KPIs. And we've lost the art of storytelling. So that was it. That was my sort of like elevator pitch to myself. Um, and that got me sufficiently annoyed to sort of turn it into a book. And most of the books I've written now are based on something that I find annoying or irritating or I really want to sort of just vent. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much how it's worked. And so just finally, what is the next thing uh, for you as a speaker, as an author, um, are you going to re-release this book with 75,000 words? <laughs> no, I've, there was a sequel to it. <laughs> yeah, Funny enough, there's one, there's one thing that gives the book away in terms of being written in... Well, it came out in 2015, so I wrote it in 2014. There's a bit where I, um, I rant about um, brand names or ideas that get merged. Because I say it's very simple. You have to keep things simple and distinct. Don't blend things together. So I give some examples in the book of Jedwood which obviously people will remember as a very topical reference. Mm. But the other thing I, I wrote about, and people still write to me on, email, on LinkedIn or whatever and say, the thing that gives it away is I talked about a, a particular political geographical issue that was going on about a country that was thinking of leaving the European Union. And it was Grexit. Because Brexit wasn't really a thing. Right. And it was Greece, if you remember, Greece mm. had had this fight. So people say to me, that's the only thing that I think would, that, we, that would change, because there's a paperback edition coming out soon. But the next book, um, I mentioned the three areas I'm interested in, storytelling, insight, and behavioural economics. So I'm going to do a book, I'm writing it now, I haven't quite agreed the title yet with my author, with publisher or myself. But it's going to be about behavioural economics, which is nudge theory, Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast and slow. And a wonderful quote from my uncle David Eagle, we, we don't think the way we think we think. So what I'm again looking at is why we get it so wrong in terms of understanding how people make decisions, whether it's buying products or choosing services or voting for political parties. I was going to say, will that have an anchor in advertising world as well? It will come from the advertising, but I again want to make it broader because one of the biggest groups that's taken behavioural economics and run with it is government. Hmm. So Thaler and Sunstein, who wrote Nudge, they were from Chicago. 
and one of the up-and-coming politicians that they got quite chummy with in Chicago was a man called Barack Obama. So he brought me into the White House. Um, funny enough, one of the first things that Donald Trump did was take out all of the behavioural nudge team out of the, the, the White House. I know that because they did some work with Google, and Google told me that they just bought them. Google just said, OK, we, we'll buy them, we'll take them. So I want to talk about that, how it works at government level, how it works for advertising, but again in terms of other decisions that we make, whether it's in terms of our partners, our homes, our family, whatever. So I want to, I want to look at how, again, behavioural economics and influence actually works, rather than how companies like to think that it might work. OK, well, I think, thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to reading the next book. And, um, yeah, maybe talk to you again then. Good. Thanks a lot, Kieran. Thank you very much. Thanks.